Thank you, Bryce, very, very much. Welcome, everyone. It is a pleasure to see all of you this morning. And to those of you joining us online, again, we welcome you. Glad that you could join with us as well. Uh, if you'll take your Bibles, please, we're going to turn. I know it says Psalm 107. That's a typo. I just forgot to change it when I was changing the template uh, for today. Uh, we are back still in Numbers 15. Numbers 15, beginning at verse 37, and I'll read through verse 41. That's the end of the chapter. And I would invite you, if you're able, please, to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Numbers 15, 37 to 41. Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of Yahweh to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Yahweh your God. The Lord adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Please be seated. So we are carrying on. I'm going to resist the temptation to say we're going to wrap this up today. Just, that's my hope, but we'll, we'll see. Um, we've been going through looking at this, uh, this aspect of being holy in every aspect of our lives. And we're taking our cue from this passage here in Numbers 15, where Israel was commanded as a perpetual ordinance that they were to put on the corners of uh, uh, their garments, or it's often a shawl these days, but they put it on the corners with a blue thread in it to remind them of their obligation to heaven, that they are to uh, be careful about the commands of God to do them, and these tassels were to serve as a reminder of what God had commanded as well as who he wants. And so in a somewhat arbitrary fashion, uh, we looked at uh, blue tassel number one as uh, something that we should be reminded of, and that is that we should be holy in speech. Uh, speech that's aware of the Lord's presence. Speech that is honest, wise, kind, under control. Speech that is full of praise for our God. And then blue tassel number two, uh, though that, that talk, that speech comes from somewhere. It comes out of our hearts. It comes out of our, our thoughts. And so being holy in our thought is another area that we need to call to remembrance when we're standing before a holy God. Because holy, God, holy thoughts are truly aware of the fact that not just the words of our lips, but the thoughts of our minds are indeed accountable to God himself. And so our thoughts ought to be filled with God's word and meditating upon his ways and his works of walking, of, of thoughts that are, are, are conscious of and endeavoring to walk in a way that is submissive unto the Lord, not letting our thoughts run away with us and add all sorts of things to what God has said and, or take away. Holy thoughts are also filled with, with uh, virtuous things, with peaceful thoughts and 
with love for others. And then we also looked at the, the third blue tassel, which had to do with our behavior to walk obediently before him, uh, righteously, carefully, faithfully, in a disciplined fashion, self-control, submissive unto the Lord, as well as there's a mutual submission to each other as well, not lifting ourselves up in arrogance over each other, while walking with a proper sense of fear and awe before God, our behavior ought to reflect that we recognize again that we're accountable to him. And behavior that is hopeful, anticipating uh, his blessing and the inheritance that is ours because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then last week we began to look at the fourth tassel. Uh, somebody pointed out that um, these messages are getting longer each time. So we did one message on speech. Uh, no, we did one message on speech and thought, covered all of that. In one. Then behavior was one. And now we're in worship, the fourth tassel. And point, we got through point one last time. And there's two more points to go. But noting that the first aspect of holy worship is that it is suitable. It is suitable uh, for who God is, suitable for who we are in his presence, and suitable for uh, who we are as those who testify and reveal his character in the midst of a crooked and perverse uh, generation. We thought about the whole idea of the culture that we live in in Christ. We pointed out that the music of the world which if you, th if you think about it in a particular way, every song that's ever been written, I hope I'm not overstating this. I don't think I am. I think I can make a case for this. Every song that's ever been written, everyone, is an act of worship of something or someone. Uh, sometimes it's if it's a defiant, rebellious kind of song, it's a backwards way of worshiping the thing that, you're, uh, that you want instead of what you're, you're arguing against, you're rebelling against. In every case, music as composition is something that is a response to the reality that's around us, either pro or con. We either affirm what God has done and rejoice in it, or we're, we're trying to give his glory to somebody else. Or something else. Anyway, the music of the world, um, if you think about it in a certain way, it's suitable for the cultures that, that give birth to it. It fits. For a culture that's in rebellion and sin, it's not surprising that its music is, is designed to foment that and give voice to that response. Uh, if, if a culture is filled with chaos and filled with disorder, it's no surprise that the music that, that observes that and lives in that is going to uh, reflect that chaos, reflect that disorder. And you, as we went through last time, I'm not going to re-preach uh, last time, or we'll, we truly will never finish the, the, uh, <laughs> this little series here. But we did talk about the idea of the fact that there is such a thing as Christian music. Uh, there is the Lord's song that we can sing in a strange land. And thinking about the nature of our own culture in Christ. 
that of peace, uh, even in the midst of sorrows, that of joy in the presence of God, that of wonder at his creation, the, the, the joy of our fellowship together in Christ and the Holy Spirit is something to be celebrated and something to be um, uh, bringing before the Lord as something for which we are very, very grateful. All of these things uh, should be re reflected in the music that we produce and sing. And we ended up asking, uh, asking each other the question, what do your music preferences uh, declare about which culture you are a part of? So today we're going to move on to another aspect of this holy worship. And that is that holy worship is substantial. Holy worship is substantial. Now let me give you some examples. When you look at uh, Deuteronomy 32, for example, and it's basically repeated uh, verbatim in Psalm 90, we have the Song of Moses. Uh, probably many of you have read it. I hope everyone has read it from either place or both. But Moses' song, as he sings of God's deliverance after the defeat of the Egyptians at the Red Sea. If you ever... If, if you haven't read it in a while, you ought to read it again. And, but read it with this, this uh, perspective or this framework to kind of look at it and say, all right, when, when Moses gives his thanks for what God has done, does he just... Uh, I'm going to use a, the terminology. Uh, is, is Deuteronomy 32 a 7-Eleven song? Seven words repeated 11 times. Uh, it, there's a lot there about God, about who God is, about his history, about the context of everything, um, put in both direct as well as figurative language to elevate the name of Yahweh who delivered his people out of bondage and brought them into freedom. It is weighty stuff. Then take, oh, just that little psalm, Psalm 119. 176 verses, all about the Word of God. Now I want you to think, as we think about our culture, which is based, as, as Christians in the church, it's built upon God's Holy Word. And yet I wonder how many of us could could credibly give a dozen descriptions of God's Word. And explore their implications. The psalmist does it 176 times. Now yes, there's repetition. Repetition aids learning. <laughs> but the different ways to describe God's word, which, under, which reveal a, a familiarity with it, a love of it, a, a treasuring of it. All of those things are revealed just in that one psalm. And then there's many, many others throughout the rest of the scriptures. Can we really praise the Lord in that way with that kind of substance? 
Or do we struggle to find words in our prayers, in our testimonies to one another, and in our songs uh, to be able to, to dig deep into what just God's Word is, not to mention God's love, not to mention the, the infinite Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that He is, not to mention the ministry of the Holy Spirit, not to mention uh, every other doctrine that we have uh, laid out for us in the Scriptures. There is substance there. Uh, around Christmas time, um, every so often we take a look at Mary's Magnificat and point out, here's a, a, a teenage girl who's writing like she's a seasoned, you know, uh, theological doctor in a, in, a, in a seminary who has got, you know, four or five or six or more degrees behind his name and the, the stuff that she says about who God is and remembering his history, remember all he, remembering all he's done and, and, and pointing out his character and what it means for us and what it means for society and, and what it means for the future. It's amazing. Does that mean that there's, not, uh, that there's no place for, and I'm going to use this term, um, I don't mean it in a pejorative way, uh, does that mean that there's no, no place for a, a childish response in the presence of a holy God where we cry out to him, Abba, Father, because sometimes that's all we know what to say? Of course, there's a place for that. But if that's all we ever want, it's like saying, well, we're just going to build our diet on whipped cream. Tastes good. But uh, it's not really, you know, going to do you very well. But all too often, at least in the West, many are content with whipped cream praise. And that's all they want. You get into to hymns and you get into other things like that. It's like, oh, it's just too much. I can't really do it. And my question is, why is it too much? I get it sometimes that the tunes might not be as singable as the latest, you know, popular music tunes. And sometimes that's why we change the tunes up, because it makes them easier to sing. But if we're not enjoying the depth of expression about who God is, I would submit that maybe we don't really know Him very well. Because holy worship in the presence of a holy God is substantial. Think about the vision that we have of the throne in heaven in Revelation chapter 4. So in the midst of the description of all the furnishings and the glories that are there, the, the, the many faceted praises that come from the lips of the saints should provide for us an example of what our praises should be like. And there's nothing fluffy or, or empty about them. I love this verse in 2 Chronicles 20 and 21 that uh, he appointed those who were to sing to Yahweh and praise him in holy splendor as they went before the army saying, give thanks to Yahweh for his steadfast love endures forever. Reminds me of an uh, incident in church history where the, uh, some of the, the Protestant Catholic wars that were going on 
one of the Scandinavian kings, I can't remember his name right now, anyway, sent an army down, um, and they're all, and it's described, they were, they were Lutherans, and they reportedly, as they're marching into battle, in all of their armor, and you just picture these Scandinavian guys that talked about their, their hair in braids and wrapped around their necks to protect against sword thrusts, you know, this kind of stuff. And they're in their shining armor and they've got their banners and they've got their spears and they're marching into battle singing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And you just think, oh. that's that's a, those, That's coming out of hearts that are so filled with God and so filled with their understanding of who He is that they, in every aspect, even as they are seeking to defend His name, they're singing praises to Him. And again, there's no fluff here. There's no fluff here. As they reflect upon the covenant-making and keeping God because His faithfulness to His promises endures forever. I think most of you are probably familiar with Paul's words in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly uh, in all wisdom. Now, one result of focusing upon the biblical text of what God says about himself and what he has done and what he calls upon us to do, one result of that is his substance. If you really are focusing on the text and really letting the text inform you of who God is and what the reality is that you and I are to be responding to, our response will, to that degree, be filled with substance. And while they're, again, in very, in very uh, you know, for, for, for little ones who are just learning things, um, and even there's a place for, for those that just are coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and they don't really know much yet, uh, sometimes a, a simplistic, uh, even repetitive uh, little song that can help you uh, grasp certain truths a little bit at a time, okay. But if that, again, is your whole diet, that's a problem. Because we're supposed to be growing. We're supposed to be maturing. Moving from grace to grace and glory to glory. And simplistic, repetitive lyrics, um, whether it's in songs or if when we're in our prayers, we just pray the same little, the same little phrases all the time. And never branch out to to explore uh, as we as we wrestle with God and commune with Him to to say what does Your Word say and and using His words back to Him fleshing out your response so that you increase your vocabulary of who God is and and your praise of Him. That's what should be happening. And if all we have is the simplistic stuff, or in a nutshell, bumper sticker kinds of saying type version of theology, I would, I would uh, suggest to you that that does not add up to f- dwelling in you richly. The word of Christ dwelling in you richly, it doesn't add up to fullness. No matter how many, we, uh, many times we become you know, ecstatic uh, when... Uh, our emotions sometimes overrule our mind orientation of the Word. Because the Word really is 
about the, the mind and the mind informing the emotions rather than the other way around. So we need to have our hearts and minds filled with God's Word so that our responses then can be biblical and, and again, suitable because of its substance in the presence of a holy God. To put it in a, in a very everyday life kind of situation, um, if I come up to you, any of you, and start uh, uh, praising you for something, um, you're going to tell really fast whether or not I actually know you or not. Or if I'm just trying to schmooze you for something. Right? You ever had somebody come up to you do that and start complimenting you right up and you go, you don't know, yeah. <laughs> what do you want? Right? Sometimes I wonder how the Lord responds to some of our prayers and some of our songs. Oh, you guys. What do you want? Because we come to him and we just say the same little mantras over and over and over again. Or repeat his name in an, in an empty fashion over and over and over again because we don't know what else to say. Fill your heart and mind with his word and you will have no trouble knowing what to say to him. The psalmist makes the application of this uh, quite perfectly, no surprise there. Where he says in Psalm 119, verse 54, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. What's a statute? It's pretty exciting stuff, isn't it? It's called a law or a rule. When was the last time you went, oh, I get to sing about all God's rules with excitement? And yet that's exactly what the psalmist is saying, that his songs of praise are about. And the reason why is because that, that law, as we were talking about in, in Sunday school this morning, that law is a reflection of his character and his person and a reminder of all that he's done. And so we're not just saying, lovely, I get to keep another rule. No, what we're saying is, I rejoice because I get to live in the presence of a holy God and know that I can do so confidently because I'm doing what he's told me to do and enabled me to do. And in that kind of confidence, there's joy. There's joy. <laughs> There's something else that I want you to consider here. And uh, hang in there with me. This is a little bit more of a philosophical point. But it's related to the whole concept of what it means to be created in the image of God. We typically think of that uh, sometimes in a very uh, shallow way is that, well, um, you know, we have being. And uh, we, have, we share some characteristics with him. And, and that's true. I mean, it's not that that's, that's wrong, but there's more to it than that. Because of what that phrase image means in the scriptures, 
It goes beyond just sharing some characteristics. And it speaks to uh, purpose. It speaks to being a testimony uh, to him. Because uh, the word is, the, is from the same word that, that we get our word, the word Stella from, which was an ancient way of telling a conquered people who was boss. It would, carved on there would be the name of the king who conquered them, uh, a re recounting of how they got conquered and what was expected of them to do if they were going to live in harmony with their new master and expectations of what would happen if they didn't. What that suggests to me is that part of being the image of God is to be his representative in the world. And if we're going to represent him, there's a matter of, yes, declaring what he has said to ourselves and to the world about his laws, about his statutes, about what he requires. But also in the way and in the content of what we say and do in our worship, we are representing him to those around us. And it will have a, if we reflect on this carefully, it will have a bearing on the kind of music that we sing, the kind of prayers that we pray, the kind of statements that we make about God, the books that we write about Him, the songs that we compose about Him. All of those things, we will be, in all of those things, we will be representing God in what we say and do. So what we do and how we do it sends a direct message to the world around us about the God whom we serve. A guy named uh, Calvin Johansson wrote a book called Music and Ministry, a biblical counterpoint, and he explores this idea of the imago dei, the image of God, uh, very, very thoroughly as he's speaking about composition, in particular here, of music. But I love this statement. We image God, he says, in the music we do. When the program is hit or miss, we show forth a God who lacks purpose and direction. When our work is not well prepared, we image a God who is lazy and slothful. When the performance preparation is a last minute affair, we show forth a procrastinating God. When our performance of music lacks vitality or artistic grace, we show God to be inert. When our musical choices revolve around our favorite style or body of composition, God is seen as rigid and unbending. That's the idea of we can only worship God if, we, if things sound a certain way. Um, I call that the, the idol of aesthetics. Um, and above all, when the music we choose lacks creativity in the fullness sense, breaking new ground imaginatively and with integrity, we image forth a God of creative mediocrity. The question each church musician, and I would say each worshiper really, faces, is not shall I, but what will be the image set forth? If you ask what image of God is being set forth by what you do, it will change the way you worship. 
And that kind of goes back to what's the suitable stuff we were talking about. Because God is not sensual. God is not chaotic. God is not divided or uncertain or weak or, or fearful. How are we imaging him? And if we want to image him properly, our worship in song, in word, in thought must be laden with his word. Now, I said uh, last week I was going to say a little bit about the regulative principle here. Who else heard of that? Several of you heard of it. Some of you haven't? Okay. So this is something that uh, there, uh, there may be some listening or that will listen to this uh, from, that are in the Reformed world that just heard what I said from, I quoted from Calvin uh, Johansson and going, Wait a minute, what's going on there? You're talking about creating new music? Creating new, what? what? We can't do that? Okay. Um, a little history. Coming out of the Reformation, which is where the roots of this, though it was not really formulated until the 20th century, per se. But uh, there's a, in, in the, the Lutheran realm, as well as in the, the, the uh, Roman realm as well, the general idea for worship is that whatever is, this is really oversimplified, but just for the sake of time, uh, whatever is not forbidden is fine. If you don't have an app, if you don't have a, uh, uh, a command in the scriptures somewhere that say you can't do that, then have at it. Um, the reform side of the camp, it was kind of the opposite. Uh, that unless it was commanded, uh, you, you could, it, it was forbidden. You, you had to, you, you did what was commanded and that's it. Now again, that's very general, but that's a decent summary of the differences between those two approaches. And the regulative principle uh, in the 20th century attempted to make that more, uh, more, I'm gonna, I may get in trouble for this, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. To make it more law-like. That only if there, and particularly in the, the strictest version of it is, if there is not a specific command in the New Testament, even repeating what was done in the Old Testament, it didn't matter if it was done in the Old Testament, particularly if it was around the temple. Unless it was repeated by specific command in the New Testament, you couldn't do it. So that's why in, in some strict reform circles, there's, there's no choirs, there's no instruments, um, and uh, exclusive psalmody is part of this, and, and all of that. Um, clearly, Johansson is not coming from that perspective, because he's talking about creating new texts. Um, and here in this church, uh, we don't come from that perspective either, though what we have is a, kind of a modified version of it. Both, because we see value in the forms that God has given. I mean, the, the scriptures tell us that the things that were done in the Old Testament, among, Israel's, among the people of Israel, were done for our edification and example. So uh, we see that. I, I don't see a command that uh, the regular principle, as formulated, is not inspired. It's, but some kind of try to treat it that way. Um, it's not. It's a good 
policy to pay attention to what God has said in his word about how to come into his presence. And so the way that we operate here with that is the forms that he has commanded or modeled in both the Old and the New Testaments. Keeping in mind that he has commanded us to sing, he's commanded us to pray, he's commanded us to attend to his word, he's commanded us to express our thanksgivings to him, he's, expand, he's commanded us to come corporately into his presence. And so we do those things. But we find, we find freedom in the, in the word to go to follow not just specific commands, but also precepts. And so it's a little more of a theological approach rather than just finding a, a verse that says, do this, don't do that. Now I could spend a lot of time on this, but I wanted to go ahead and say it here because it's, it has to do with substance. We've got to be careful not to go beyond God's word. Think about Joshua, for example, in the Old Testament. He was commanded when they crossed the River Jordan, the Lord commanded him to build an altar. Remember that? Take some stones, go put them on the side there uh, as an altar, a perpetual memorial as to what God had done. It was an act of worship. That's what was to be done. And Joshua did it. But Joshua went on to do something else. You remember what he did? He took 12 more stones and he plunked them down in the middle of the river and made another altar. God did not command him to do that. And I think one reason that Joshua put it in the middle of the river is because there probably wasn't going to be any danger of competition with what God had said earlier. Nobody's going to dive down there and make an offering. But he repeated it in kind he followed the pattern of what God had said and, and he didn't innovate in kind. And that's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. We're called upon to sing praises. Um, I've looked in vain. I see no verse anywhere where David was ever commanded to write a single psalm or where Moses was commanded to write his song or where Miriam was. There's evidence of songs in the New Testament to snippets of them that are that we know some of them are part of ancient uh, ancient worship that are not psalms they're reflecting the personal work of Jesus Christ who fills up all those things and fulfills all the things that were spoken of and looked up in advance I, I, if you're a strict regular principle person you won't sing um, songs about Jesus per se because those aren't this they're not in the Psalms. So we're not commanded to do that, so we don't. I find that hard to swallow. Uh, I, don't, I don't see uh, biblically any justification for that. So when you look at this substance question, let us have our hearts and minds filled with the word, both the written word and the living word. And let's do more than sing little ditties about, about who God is. And, and learn to expand our vocabulary, to strive as best we can, to capture all of his glory as, we can, as much as we can as we lift up our voices in holy worship unto him. Okay, well, 
Nope, I'm going to stop. <laughs> I get wound up about this stuff. Uh, this has been part of my life for a long, long time. But I think it's important. Because this has to do with uh, our understanding of who we are in the presence of the Holy God. And if we just come carelessly into his house, content with giving lip service, even if it's somewhat heartfelt lip service, those, don't, those things seem to be kind of an oxymoron, but what I mean by it is just being content with scratching the surface of who he is. Beloved, he's infinite. He's majestic. He's beyond our reckoning. And yet he commands us to come into his presence with joy. Let us have the desire in our hearts that what we say back to him will actually be true. Will actually be some semblance to the degree that we can. Some semblance of fullness of who he is and what he's done, both for his people and for us in particular. Young people, your prayers right now are relatively simple because you're young, because you're not as experienced. You, some of you may not even read yet. But whether you, whether you are six or 60 or beyond, to the degree that you know God, let your mouth be filled with it. Don't be content with just saying, thank you for this day, be good to everybody, amen. It's right and good to thank the Lord for the day. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let's thank him for the day. But let us, even uh, in a, however young or immature we are, Say, Lord, I don't know you well, but I want to know you better. Help me learn from your word to know that you are holy, that you are wonderful, that you are glorious. I'm not even sure what that means yet, but I know you're glorious because you've said it. And I want to praise you in a way that makes you happy. Have a conversation with him. Don't, and, and for all of us, have a conversation. Don't just be content with saying the little phrases and mantras that we do. Because God is not that stale. He is not shallow. He's not limited. Let's let our songs and our prayers that spring out of our thoughts and studies and meditations be worthy of our glorious kings, king, suitable for his presence and substantial because he is weighty. You know, of course, that that's the word behind the word glory, right? A person's glory, it, it, it's, it means his weight. When you glorify him, you're, you're, you're saying he's weighty. He's worth something. And our God is infinitely worth something. So let's let our praise and our worship be holy in that way because he is a holy God. All right, we'll wrap up there and pick up with the the third aspect of holy worship.
God willing, next week. Let's pray. Lord God, how thankful we are that you are not a hollow God. That you are not all, all noise and no strength. We thank you that you, the creator of the universe, have accommodated yourself to communicate with us, to break into our existence, confront us with who we are and, and with who you are. And our lack of response, our lack of worship, and calling us to yourself, making us new creatures in the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, let our worship reflect the weight of who you are and the weight of our gratitude for your person and work. And truly, Lord, be glorified in us through our testimony as we encourage each other and speak your name into the world around us. We pray these things in Christ's blessed name.